Gracious God, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word that teaches us how to praise you, um, that teaches us the glory of your name, the wonder of your character, the joy of seeing what you do in the world and the, the unabashed, uh, overwhelming praise that should come as a result of that. Uh, we pray, Lord, that today, as we step into your word, we would be a people driven to praise you, uh, not by duty, but by joy, uh, by the wonder of who our God is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you haven't already, grab a Bible, flick open to 100, uh, Psalm 145. If you haven't got a Bible with you and you'd like to do that with us, there is a stack of them on that shelf at the back there. Uh, that you are welcome to use. They have been, not been touched for more than 72 hours, so they meet regulations if you want to know that. Um, yeah. Uh, now, let me ask, though, start with a question. If I asked you to describe what God is like in one sentence, uh, what might you say? All-powerful. All powerful. There we go, one word. Uh, let, me, let me be more specific. You have... You have, uh, that was, that was good. All powerful, is that two words or is it a, is it a, okay. Well, omnipotent, there you go, narrow it down to one. Um, you have, you know, let's say a maximum of 10 to 15 words in one sentence uh, to describe God's character. So not, not like his, um, well, God is, you know, uh, God has done this, this and this, he, he led the exodus, that sort of thing. Um, no, what, what's God's character like? You know, you might say, and actually, it's funny that Anita said this, because here's my first example I had. God is mighty, powerful, a great creator who is over all. Ten words, not bad, right? Although, once again, Anita beat me. She had one. Um, maybe some people might say God is terrible. You know, there's, there's one that comes up a bit. God is a killjoy who just wants to be in control of everything. God is terrible, killjoy who wants to be in control of everything. Fifteen words to hit the, hit the maximum end there. Maybe some people would say God is distant. God is far away, far above us, and we can't know him, 13 for reference sake. Well, today we're, uh, we're stepping into Psalm 145, like we said. And uh, this psalm is an outright unabashed song of excessive praise to God. Uh, again, this week we're in a, a psalm of David, just like last week. And, uh, and in this psalm... David just goes all out in praising God. Uh, he, he gets pretty over the top sometimes even in his language. And what we'll see in, in this is that uh, he praises God because of who God is, because of his character, and because of how that character works out in what God does in the world. And Psalm 145 has just one point of application, really. Um, but that one point fans out... Uh, into every part of our lives if we see it rightly. You know, I believe, here's, here's a big claim, I believe that if you could understand in full how the lesson of Psalm 145 applies to every part of your life and apply it there, then you would be transformed to have an upstanding, joy-exuding, and I would say it even perfect life. Not, not perfect in the sense that everything would go well for you, the world would still be broken, but you in yourself would have perfection. There's a big claim, isn't it? You know, uh, did, did you hear that? Like this, this, that, this is outrageous in a way. This 
is a, a, a good reason to sit up and pay attention to what's coming next, isn't it? If you could fully comprehend and apply the lesson of Psalm 145 to your life, then even though you live in the midst of an imperfect, broken world full of trouble and struggle, your life would be perfectly godly, perfectly filled with joy. I don't usually make that kind of a big claim at the start of a sermon, you might notice. And the big qualification to that that we have to give, of course, is that none of us will fully comprehend every way that the lesson of this psalm applies to our lives. In this, in this life, we won't anyway. But nevertheless, in as much as we do apply the lesson of Psalm 145 to our lives, we will find joy and transformation going on in our lives. And the funny thing is that this psalm has no like direct application Easter. It has no um, six steps to a better life with David, you know. It doesn't make an appearance. It doesn't have a do this, do that, do this, and then you'll be on the right track. Uh, in fact, there's, there's barely a command, barely an imperative in the whole thing, right? If you were to boil down this psalm into one fact, one point, not the point of application, just the point of what it says, I think it would be that when you truly comprehend the character and the person of God, the only logical response is praise, Maybe another way of putting that is, is worship and wonder are the heart of a good life. Actually, that's more of an applicational way of putting it. But anyway, let's have a look at it now. You know, the first part of this psalm goes for the first seven verses. Um, uh, verse 3 in particular gives us a, a summary of the point of the whole thing. Um, fun fact, one of Crystal's favorite verses in the Bible, this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Three greats, one sentence. Basically, this isn't a psalm about me or you. Um, this is a psalm about the greatness of God and who God is. And God is great, says David. Greater than we could ever imagine. If you spend your life diving into how wonderful, how beautiful our God is, for your whole life trying to find the full extent of how exceedingly great our God is, then you'll never reach the bottom. His greatness is unsearchable. And so because he is so great, he is greatly to be praised. And cast your eyes onto those first seven verses now um, and notice how excessive the language here looks. Um, I'm not sure if I'm undercutting something I'm going to say later on, but, but um, when I was growing up, uh, I, I came to uh, resent songs. We, we had a lot of church songs that talked a lot about what I was going to do. You know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to praise you all of my life. I want to be a reflector, you know. Um, one giggle. Um, and it was, it was a lot of it about me. And I actually came to resent that in the end because I found it to be unworshipful uh, in, in my mind. I, I ended up in a place where I went, ah, I don't think that that's what praise is about. I think praise is all about who God is. Um, Psalm 145 kind of rebukes me, puts it out there. Because Psalm 145, certainly it is about who God is, but gosh, he says a lot about how I'm going to respond to that. And it's good to, to, to think about how I'm going to respond to that. You know, and David does this in a lavish way. Notice, notice in these verses 
how many verbs, you know, verbs are doing word, um, how many verbs he uses to describe how David will praise God, how God's people will praise God as well. He's doing it as a, as a congregational thing. Here's, here's a list for you. Extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, meditate, speak, declare, again, uh, pour forth. He's kind of picturing himself like a jug full of God's wonder and therefore pouring forth God's praise. Sing aloud. I lost count there. Sorry. But uh, David is so set on praising God that he can't contain his intentions to do so to one word. Now, it's not just, I will praise you, and then he goes on to the list about all of the reasons why. He goes, you know, I'm going to praise, I'm going to extol, I'm going to bless. He'll praise God in every way that he can. And why? Well, because of how God's character works out in God's actions. And at the heart of this psalm, like really the beating heart of the psalm, uh, we get this one declaration of the character of God, and then the rest of it focuses focuses broadly on three aspects of his, his action. Um, the heart of the psalm comes in, in verses 8 and 9, um, where David writes, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That first verse in particular uh, is the heart of this. And it's funny, if that sounds familiar, it's because Rach read it out from Psalm 103, was it? Yeah, before. It's a, it's a direct quotation, actually, from, from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, um, where God reveals himself to Moses and to his people at Mount Sinai. And, and he, he's asked, you know, who are you? And, and, and God says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's the, the heart of the psalm where we get uh, the character roots of the action that is praised throughout the rest. We get God's self-revelation from Exodus there of, of what he is like, of what his heart is like, the, that fuels what he does in the world. You know, remember that question that I asked you a minute ago, how would you describe in God in 10 to 15 words? Well, here we have God's go at it, right? God's self-description of himself in, in 14 words. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's the nature of who God is. When God is asked, who are you? That's how he answers. There's the heart of God, especially towards his people. And so David, David praises him for that. First for his works, uh, you know, j jumping back into verses 1 to 7 there, David looks to the saving works of God and praises him for them because there, uh, there we see the goodness, there we see the steadfast love of God in how his salvation works. You know, notice in that first section, it's all about what, praising God for what God has done. You know, Every one of those verbs that we mentioned, or, or most of those verbs, sorry, that we all but one of those verbs that we mentioned, there's a good way of putting it, um, they are all responding to the saving action of God. Um, he talks about God's works, God's acts, God's deeds. These are biblical language that surrounds the saving works of God. You know, even when he says that they will pour forth the fame of God's abundant goodness, 
and sing aloud of His righteousness, that goodness and righteousness is pointing towards the ways in which God is good towards His people and the ways in which He is righteous. His, his, his justice works out for His people in saving work. So God's gracious, loving character works out in saving actions, but then we also see that His gracious and loving character works out in a good, sovereign reign or rule. Verses 10 to 13 lead God's people to praise God because His reign and rule are forever and they are good. It's really summed up in verse 13 when David praises God saying, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So that's the second area of God's, uh, God's action where His character works out. His gracious and loving character means that He is a good forever king. And so we praise him because he is good to be, because it is good to be the people of the good king. And then finally, those, those last verses praise him because his gracious and loving character work out in generous provision towards his people, in particular towards his people, uh, but also towards all of creation. He, he provides lovingly and generously and humbly. I love that, that musical rendition of this psalm. I think it really captures the way that these verses just crescendo with the wonder of what God is like. When you read these verses, and, and keep in mind who God is, the, the creator, the great king of everything, right? The first response that many of us think of is, is along with Anita there, he's all-powerful. And it's true, he is. But if you keep that in mind, what strikes you when you read these verses is how humble, how caring, and how tender our God is towards us, don't you think? I love, uh, I love that version. Uh, God upholds the one who is stumbling and, and raises up those who are burdened with heavy load. He satisfies his creation from his hand. He's not only righteous in all his ways, but he is also kind in all his works. And he is near to all who call on his name. And it's important that he says to all who call on him in truth. Because we have to call on the true God. We have to seek the true God. We have to turn to him as the God that he is. But he hears his people. He saves his people. And it ends on that uh, perhaps uncomfortable note in some ways of justice. You know, the, the song rendered that, he is holy, judging the wicked. But in, in the end, you know, this is actually good news. This is, this is returning us to God's justice for his people. God is a God who doesn't just let evil run rampant and unpunished. He's a God who's doing something about it. And just as a, a side note, there's a few things in there that you might hear and go, yeah, but does he? Is God really like that? Really? You know, maybe the easiest example is when David says that God provides food for all of creation. And you might hear that and you might ask, well, does he? You know, why, why do people go hungry then? What's going on there, God? Did you miss some? And I'm afraid that probably the simplest answer to that is, is just the, the uber uncomfortable one is that we're a broken people. Humanity is broken. And we misuse what God provides. 
you know there was a report in 2012 that found that we make enough food? In 2012, by the way, population's grown since 2012 quite a bit. Um, we make enough food in that year for, for 10 billion people to eat. It's not our maximum production, it was just what we were making at the time. 10 billion. What were we, six, five, something like that? Six billion, somewhere around that point. So maybe the question isn't, why doesn't God provide, but why don't we share? The other thing to say about that, though, is that God isn't powerless when it comes to the hungry. Um, through Jesus, he is doing something about it. Um, he is, gives hope and a promise of a world where no one will ever go hungry again because the greed that drives us will be gone and we will live with him one day and there will be no more hunger, no more crying and no more pain, no more tears. But now zoom out here with, on this side. And, uh, and what do we have? We have this exuberant, praise-packed psalm that praises God because he is gracious and he is loving. And his grace and love work out in saving actions, in sovereign rule over creation and generous provision both to the, the whole creation and particularly to his beloved people. And so the big lesson of this psalm is that everything about God drives us to wonder and to worship. But if, but if that's the case, then we can't just stop there, can we? You know, the point of the psalm is to drive us to worship God for who he is and for what he does. But if that's the case, we can't, we can't just stay in this psalm alone as our, as our thing today. Because this psalm is intended to point us forward to the great revealing of who God is and what God does in Jesus. You might remember last week we talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the psalms in the Old Testament because he said so. And we believe that, we do. Uh, and that's just, just as true here in this psalm. This psalm points us toward the good and gracious character of God worked out in saving actions, sovereign rule, and generous provision. And if you want to see the truth of that, if you want to see the character of God, you look to the one who John writes in his gospel, he has made him known. Because you, you want to talk about God's you know, rule and why his rule is so great. Talk about the God who generously provides and the God who saves his people. Look no further than Jesus. Look at, look at that description of Jesus that we read uh, we had read for us by Robin before um, from Colossians. Uh, and you'll see that God is almightily powerful and, and the God who is almightily powerful works out his power in sacrificial love for his people and redeems the whole creation in this way. If you've got a Bible, go there. Um, I'm going to go there. Colossians 1 from verse 15. page 983 for anyone who's reading my Bible. You know, Paul writes this, he says, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, he being Jesus, by the way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pause there for a second. Basic summary of that, right? Jesus is king. He is the king of creation and king of the church. He is king before creation and king for all of eternity and king in every moment. He is ruling over and sustaining every moment of creation. He is the fullness of God. But then look how the great king, remember how that connects with our psalm, the rule of God we see in Jesus. But see how the the great king exercises his rule. Read this with me. We'll continue from verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus is the God who is king of all, and yet the king of all chooses to reconcile the whole creation to himself, to make peace with a rebellious people by humbly saving them, by lowering himself and pouring out his blood by his death on a cross. in our brokenness, in our sin. And you know, the Bible describes us as as slaves to sin before we are saved. But even when we were voluntarily in that state, Jesus gave his very body, his very blood to rescue you and me. Isn't he worthy of all of the praise that David gives him there? of all of the praise that we could ever give him and more. Jesus is the perfect revelation, revealing of the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you know what? That's that's the secret to the good life. What we need in our lives more than anything else is praise and wonder and worship towards the one who deserves it all. We need to freshly see the goodness, the graciousness, the greatness and the glory of God and be brought to a place of worship and praise towards him because being filled with delight and wonder at the goodness of God in Jesus brings transformation and joy to life like nothing else can. Let me explain what I mean by giving maybe uh, a couple of, a few examples, like bringing this concept of of praise in all of life into some specific areas of life. Um, You know, showing you how it brings joy, how it brings transformation. Take parenting, for example. 
Now, not everyone here is a parent. Not everyone here is a parent of young children, uh, and I'm going to be coloured by my stage of life when I say this. So just take that in mind. Um, there's been no end of ink spilled, though, hasn't there, about how to parent, how to raise children well. Uh, but the Bible presents that at the heart of good, successful, godly parenting is, is a right view of God and praise towards him. David actually kind of gives us that right in this psalm here. Um, he says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The picture there is of an older generation loving to praise God to the younger generation. And if you want to raise your children well, then the greatest thing you can do for them is to personally delight yourself in God, to praise Him and worship Him every day. Because when they see the sense of wonder that their parents have in the glory of the God who is gracious and merciful, merciful steadfastly loving, then that will lead them to that wonder as well. Not guaranteeing your kids are going to be saved if you praise God. That, that's not up to us. But the best way we can do that is to wonder in him ourselves and let them see that. You know, it brings them to the stability of knowing that their sins and their eternity are dealt with and that God is caring for them every moment. It brings them to the, the moral goodness better than anything else can that comes with delighting in the God who is only good. These things and more, and, and aren't those the qualities that a parent wants to see in their kids? Those are the qualities that I want to see in my kids. They need to see us praise Him. The, the best way to lead them into that life is for them to see how much their parents rejoice in the God of grace revealed in Jesus. Moreover, if you're a Christian and you want your children to walk in that faith as well, um, which I think every Christian parent does or hopefully does, then what they need from you is more than morality, more than discipline, more than a theological structure or a belief system that you hand on to them. Those things are all important for good parenting, don't get me wrong, uh, but, that's, uh, but, but what's central to raising children who love Jesus is that they see that their parents really do love Him. And they see that through the worship of your day-to-day -day life. Here's another example. Perhaps, perhaps you don't have young kids um, or kids at all, or maybe your kids are all grown up. But maybe, maybe you work. You know, your work can be transformed and joy-filled if your life is full of praise towards God. Because in Jesus, we see the one who did the great work for us and we're led to praise him and to wonder in our hearts. He went to the cross for us. He did the work. And so the greatest work that I ever need done is already done. You know, I can have that perspective in every day of my life. To justify me isn't my job. My work is done in the greatest way. You know, that's a releasing reality and a praise-filled reality. And so you don't have to work for the paycheck, do you see? Because in God, in the God that your soul delights in, you have everything you need and you know that He will care for you because you can... Uh, 
because you've seen it in Jesus. Instead, you can work as though God was your employer. And so work hard, fueled not by fearful desire for your needs to be filled, but by joyful certainty that your needs are filled in him. You can be a blessing to your colleagues because you find joy in the gracious and merciful God, which leads you to grace and mercy. You can be gracious and merciful towards them, kind to them even when they don't deserve it because you praise and worship a God who has been kind to you when you didn't deserve it and still is. You know, even if you have a terrible boss, um, you know, there's all sorts of terrible bosses in the world. I've I've worked in enough workplaces to know that. Uh, You can be sure that your ultimate boss Jesus is preeminent over all of creation and so uh, certainly is preeminent over your little workplace and that he is good, he's humble, he cares for his people and so you can work for him and so work well, not get caught in that trap that others get caught in of begrudging work for a bad boss because I know that my, my ultimate boss, he's always good to me, so I'm going to work well. Let me give you one more example, money. Uh, and, and how we use it is transformed by a life of praise and worship towards God. The psalm, the psalm says, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. What that doesn't mean is that if you follow God, he'll give you anything you ask for. What that does mean is that the people who discover that God is the greatest joy that can be had, find to their delight that they will never lose him. That their greatest joy will always be theirs. And so if God is your joy, if you worship and praise him because he is the delight of your heart, then money isn't by, by just categorical fact. You can only have one thing that is, takes the highest position in your heart. And because God is your joy and he provides for you, you can go about how you use your money with joy rather than the desperate, fearful protectiveness that most people have about their money. You can live generously Because the one that you need, the one thing that you need in your life, it's never going to be lost no matter how much money you lose. So you can give of the less important things. This means you can give to people who need it. Um, It means you can support things like like, uh, compassion, for instance, sponsor a child. Uh, It means that you can give to your church so that more people might be able to hear the gospel through the growing work of that church, which incidentally mostly is to equip us for the work of sharing the gospel. Uh, Because there's so many ways that pans out, right? And it, it, it transforms you from maybe a person who, I don't know, I've had stages in my life. And like when I was a Christian where, where you know, I gave, but it was kind of I gave around the edges, um, you know, gave little bits because I was like, well, this is probably what I should do. That's how, not how Christian generosity works. Christian generosity is rooted in the fact that I receive more generosity than I'm ever going to give. Your heart is so filled with praise toward the generous God who provides generously for all. And so you can be generous with what you have. You know, maybe, maybe for you, that one, last one sits a bit more uncomfortably, um, the money one a bit. Maybe, maybe it's, it sounds a little bit crazy. You're like, well, how can, I, how can I possibly be provided for if I'm generous with my money? There's so much more joy, can I say, 
in a generous life, fueled by praise toward the God who is generous to you, than there is in a life of, of seeking and failing to find joy in money. Could someone let these people in if they'd like to? There's, there's some people who, nope, they've gone. We need to leave the door open. <laughs> but do you see what I mean by all this now? When I say that if you could understand in full how the lesson of Psalm 145 applies to your life, to every part of your life, and could apply it rightly, then you would be transformed to have an upstanding joy exuding perfect life. Because praise is at the center of perfection. It's what we were made for. We were made to worship. We were made to find wonder in the one who made us. To find our joy in God and so to praise him in everything is the most transforming, joy-giving principle that there is, I think. We were made to find our joy in God. So when we do, and as we do more and more as people of faith, as we find it in more and more ways, more and more uh, areas of our lives are affected, it changes everything great is the lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable let that be the theme of our lives would you pray with me jesus we we stand or sit in wonder fill our hearts with delight in you Give us the heart of David who looked to the saving God and, and extolled and blessed and praised and meditated on and, and, and declared the goodness and greatness of his saving works and of his royal reign and of his gentle, humble provision. Let us be filled with wonder as we know the gospel of Jesus. Let us day by day not tire of hearing it. Lord, rebuke our hearts if we're tired of hearing the good news of Jesus and, and enliven our hearts with the joy of it instead. Make us a people who praise and worship, not just with our lips, but with our lives. And so a people who are finding greater joy in every situation, great transformation in every situation, and people who are taking that joy out to those who need it. We pray it in Jesus' name.